Before we begin, here's a reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine, plus audio versions of the stories. Newscientist.com slash POD20 gets you the 20% discount. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host in London, Rowan Hooper, and joining me from Portland, Oregon this week is our co-host, Chelsea White. Hi, Chelsea. Hey, good to be back. Uh, Let's preview the show. We've got the creation of the world's largest artificial intelligence with reporter Matt Sparks here to tell us about that. Hi, Matt. Hi, Chelsea. And we've got a look at the science of the movie Dune, which I'm really excited about. I used to ride the sand dunes of Oregon when I was a kid, and that's what inspired Frank Herbert to write the book. Uh, Yeah, that is. Uh, We get into that with uh, ecosystems ecologist Yadvinda Mali. And you know how we've been building up to COP26 for a a good while now? You just can't avoid it. Uh, We've got a story to go with that, but it's not what you think this week. It's, It's basically a soundtrack to the biggest party of the year. We've put together a playlist for COP26. Brilliant. I'm really looking forward to that. Also, we've got a report on how COVID has spread so rapidly in Iran. But first, we're going to start with a powerful story about a life-saving treatment for children who are born without immune systems. This is an ultra-rare condition, but it's extremely traumatic for families of affected children because they have no way of fighting infections, and they usually die before the age of three. Rowan spoke with our Australia reporter, Alice Klein, about a special implant that is now keeping these kids alive. Hi, Alice. Now, it sounds like a really serious condition to have no immune system. So what is it that's happened in these children? Yeah, so about five in every one million children who are born have no thymus. And this is a a key immune organ that sits just above the heart. The thymus is where the T cells that you need for fighting infections mature. So if you don't have a thymus, that means you can die from any kind of germ exposure, even if you just get a simple cold virus. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard of a thymus before. I was just thinking of thyroid, but um, the thymus. So what's it like for children without thymuses? What's it like for their families? It's extremely stressful. So you can imagine, you know, their parents are constantly worried that they're going to get sick and die. They have to maintain really strict hygiene measures at home. They can't see their friends and family out of fear of catching illnesses from them. Um, Usually at least one parent has to quit their job to provide full-time care. And they often have to move house so that they can be near specialist hospitals. You can also imagine it's really hard on siblings because they often can't go to school and they can't see their friends, you know, just in case they bring germs home. But then even with all these measures, um, these affected children still usually don't make it to their second or third birthday because you can imagine as well, it's, it's just really hard to completely protect kids from germs. Yeah, it just sounds awful. And obviously with COVID-19 floating around, it's, it makes the job even harder. So how does the new treatment work? It's basically an implant that's able to produce T-cells that's inserted into the child's thigh. And once it's implanted, it it takes about six to 12 months for the number of T-cells to reach a good enough level where these kids are finally able to start fighting infections if they do get sick. So it means the kids can survive if they get an infection? Usually, yes. So the implant's now been tested in 105 uh, children without thymuses in 10 studies that go all the way back to 1993. Of these 105 children, 77 are still alive, which is amazing. And the average time since they received the implant is uh, about eight years. 
The oldest one um, is now 25, which is, you know, very impressive. And there are four others that are actually um, also older than 18 as well. Then the, if you're looking at the 28 children who sadly did not make it, uh, most of them passed away soon after getting the implant because they probably got a, a fatal infection before it had had chance to um, produce enough T-cells. So it looks like if they can make it through that first year, then they have a very good chance of survival. And when you say an implant, what's it made of? Is it a biological implant? Yeah, so the implant's made of thymus tissue that's been donated by babies that have had to have parts of their thymuses removed during heart surgery. Wow. Yeah, and the thymus tissue then is cultured in a lab and it's sliced thinly to make it suitable for transplantation. And then it's inserted into the thigh uh, of these children because the thigh muscles got lots of blood vessels that help to feed and nurture that implanted thymus tissue. And this treatment has been approved now by the US Food and Drug Administration just on, on the 8th of October. So does that mean it's going to be more accessible to kids who need it? Yeah, hopefully. So until now, children could only access this treatment if they were part of a clinical trial. And I spoke to a pediatrician at Children's Hospital Colorado in the US who has cared for five children without thymuses since 2016. And she said during that time, two have passed away waiting for the treatment is really sad and there's three that are still desperately waiting for it so hopefully this will be a lifeline for these kids who need it now it's time for our occasional look at science in culture and this week we're going to the movies with june this is Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic novel from 1965. And to discuss it, I'm joined by Yadvinder Mali, who's a professor of ecosystem science at the University of Oxford, and he's also a sci-fi fan. Uh, hi, Yadvinder. Welcome to the pod. Hi, great to be here. Now, we were both lucky enough to see a screening of June ahead of release. It's now just come out in the UK and the US. But let's set the scene. The movie is set in the year 10,191, it's quite precise, on a desert planet called Arrakis. The planet is hot and dry and basically incredibly hostile to life. So Frank Herbert came up with the idea after visiting the dunes in Oregon, because there was a project going on there to try and stabilise the sand dunes there on the coast. And the project worked to the extent that it did stop the mass shifting of the sands that was going on there. So it was, a, it was a successful ecological engineering project. And I think that got Herbert thinking about ecology and planetary science on a much bigger scale. And he was years ahead of his time, wasn't he? Not just with these ideas about terraforming, but with lots of his thinking. Yes, uh, it's interesting to place Frank Herbert in his time. And he was writing Dune in the early to mid-1960s. And uh, this was really seminal in our thinking around the environment and the planet. So Rachel Carson and Silent Spring had come out a few years before. But he was uh, very much ahead of his time in thinking about how life can shape the environment. And I think influenced by his Oregon dunes, he had thought about life stabilizing local environments, but also started thinking about life stabilizing or affecting the entire planet. And, and one of the key themes throughout Dune is how the ecology of the organisms that live there end up transforming the climate and atmosphere of the entire planet. This is something now, later on, we got a bit more familiar with, uh, with the writings of James Lovelock and Gaia in the 1970s and 80s. And there was a, a Russian writer in the 20s and 30s, Vladimir Vernadsky, who'd written a book called The Biosphere, who'd been quite pioneering in this. But because he was in the Soviet Union, he'd been largely ignored in the West 
uh, until that time. And I'm sure Herbert must have come across those ideas in, in developing his book. Yeah, and so one of the characters in the book has the title of Planetary Ecologist, great title. And he says some really prescient stuff as well. He says about ecology, the highest function of ecology is the understanding of consequences. What does he mean by that? And do you think that's a good statement about ecology still? Well, firstly, I quite like that title of Planetary Ecologist. And I was rereading it, the book, I thought, oh, yeah, that's me. I, I can be that. It's about understanding ecological processes, but not only thinking at the local scale, but the planetary scale of how there's a process cascade to planetary level. <laughs> but in terms of that, I think it's a certain take on ecology. And I think one part of ecology is about understanding complex cascading consequences, that there's a web of interactions between organisms and between the non-living and the living world. And if you tweak that web by driving species to extinction or introducing new species, those things cascade through in a very complex systems approach that you can't simply linearly predict from first principles overall. And I think uh, that's perhaps what the planetary ecologist in, in the book was trying to get to, right? these complex webs that connect things that lead to quite, quite un- unexpected consequences. So does the ecology of Arrakis make sense then? Broadly, I, I think uh, it does. I think he clearly was familiar with ecology, and particularly desert ecology, I think informed by his thinking around sand dunes. Constantly he's referring to ecological ideas. And, even, and one effect he talks about is the Tansley effect. And Tansley is regarded as the father of, of modern ecosystem ecology. So he, he knew his ecological science and literature. Having said that, it's a half a century on from when he wrote that book. And I find myself asking a few questions. One thing that occurs to me as an ecologist is, where does the food come from? Where does the energy come from? Sometimes when you see science fiction worlds, you see worlds full of predators, for example, and I think, nah, that can't happen. You can't have the energy supply to have a world just full of predators. And so in the case of the dune world, the key animals in that ecosystem are these huge titanic sandworms that roam the desert, feeding on sand plankton. I have my doubts, though, that the plankton productivity could really be that high on a desert planet. Can the plankton really produce the the, the biomass that would be required to support a sandworm? Another thing that seems prescient in the book and the movie is Frank Herbert's thinking about scarce resources. And obviously that's water on June, most obviously. Uh, And the people living there have really sophisticated ways to recycle and, and harvest water. Yeah, so he was very aware of this tight limitation of resources and the characters of the desert, the Fremen, quite strongly influenced, I think, by cultures of the Sahara. You see, even the use of Arabic, but also just in their their mode of existing and in the movie, the the dresses that they wear. But but a high-tech version of that, very aware of the tight recycling of water required to survive in the desert. And so I think in some ways he was thinking about some of these ideas around the circular economy that, that's become more prominent now. How how do we survive in a place of finite resources by reusing resources and working with technology to, to maximise the reuse of resources? And many of those questions are now important at societal and planetary level, but they're epitomised in, the, in these uh, people living in this, uh, in this water-starved planet. Um, and the other thing that's key to Arrakis is that it's the only place in the galaxy where you get this substance called spice. And that's a a psychoactive compound. No wonder it's the most valuable substance in the universe because it delays aging for many millennia, perhaps, but also somehow allows interstellar travel. 
and the spice is created by the sandworms, isn't it? Yes, so Herba created this whole complex life cycle. And it turns out that the, the sand plankton that the mature worms feed on are actually juveniles off the sandworm itself. And there's a larval stage. So he creates this quite complex ecology. And it emerges later in the book that the sandworms are the source of this spice that, that is so valuable. So once if the sandworms are driven to extinction, the spice disappears. And I think there's a little lesson there again about the valuable services that many creatures provide or, or many ecosystems provide that we, we don't fully understand and are lost if those uh, disappear. But uh, he was clearly also a child of the 1960s or not a child or a writer in the 1960s in his interest and in his fascination in psychoactive compounds. This was a time when there was new interest in, in these ideas of the doors of perception and Aldous Huxley, Huxley's words being opened up by Spice. And you know, beyond the, the immediate sort of hippie culture, there was actually a serious philosophical argument here that, that the world, the ecology of the world, the ecology of societies is so complex that normally we retain very narrow focus on one part of it, simply to survive and to be able to handle the world. When our mind is opened up to the web of connections in ecology or in the world at large, then we are able to to see how things fit together and weave together to form the web of societies, of ecosystems and planets. And in, in, in the Dune novels, that's what enables navigators to cross between stars and the complexity of, of uh, navigation across stars requires hyper-aware individuals to be as navigators on, on these planes. But I think more generally, it does capture this idea of this complex web of ecological interactions all around us that we're only partially aware of, that in the, in the fiction, the drug enables us to have a more deep and full awareness of these connections. Now, we're not going to give away any spoilers, but I, I could watch this film again, actually. There's so much to get into and be immersed in, isn't there? Yeah, most definitely. I'm already planning a, a second viewing uh, with my family this time. And it was absolutely stunning. I think the, the visuals, the world creation of different cultures it really comes together in the movie. And the soundtrack is just stunning. So it's definitely one to see in the cinema. But as I said earlier, if, if you want to delve deeper into the world that is so elaborately painted in the, in the movie, it's really worth also delving into the book because it captures a, a lot more of that depth as well. But it's a terrific movie. We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist. Yes, subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app. We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form. It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com slash app. Download the issue and explore. Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers. We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out and happy listening. Now we have a story about the largest ever artificial intelligence. Yeah, did you see pictures of it? It's absolutely <laughs> massive. It's like the pictures from the 80s, you know, that used to fill up an entire room and it could just add one and one or something. Um, but this is like, this is a cutting edge computer. And um, so Matt, what is it and what does it do? 
Yeah, so it is pretty massive. It's, it's all about making connections to mimic the connections in a human brain. And the aim is to get computers to talk. So uh, obviously that's been a, a problem or a desire for decades now. It's, it's the exact same problem that's at the core of the famous Turing test or the imitation game, where an AI and a human are both hidden away and asked questions over text by a third party who has to guess which is which. We've made some progress over the years, but things really kicked off when neural networks came onto the scene. Last year, a company called OpenAI released a, a model called GPT-3, which was it was really surprising. It, it was able to complete sentences logically and even create whole documents from a, just from a headline. And one researcher even used it to create a pretty compelling blog post about itself. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, and I played around a bit with GPT-2 uh, before, which was that was the free version of sort of free, cheapo public version. And even that was pretty good. Uh, so how do they work? So artificial neural networks, they, they use little allocated chunks of data to represent the synapses between neurons in our own brains. And just like with brains, it seems that bigger is better. Um, so GPT-3 had 175 billion of these so-called parameters. And now this NVIDIA and Microsoft one has 530 billion. And it's even got a bigger name, which is the Megatron Turing Natural Language Generation Model. <laughs> I, I do like the, the start of that name, Megatron Turing. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, 530 billion sounds like a big number, but it's also sort of really abstract to me. How big is this model? So probably the easiest way to get your head around the scale of it is to think about the computer they needed to run it. So uh, they used NVIDIA's Selene supercomputer, which is is actually 560 really powerful individual servers just all running in a network, which is why Rowan said that it filled a room. It literally does fill a, a huge room. And <laughs> each one of those servers had eight really high-end graphics cards, each of which cost thousands of pounds if you if you were to buy it commercially. So you've got 4,480 of those graphics cards all churning away on the problem because it turns out that graphics cards, they, they're really good at sort of running these AI computations. No, it just sounds like they've got loads of Xboxes all hooked up together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know a few NVIDIA engineers who might have something to say about that sort of <laughs> categorization, <laughs> but that, that is pretty much it. Sorry, I also said that GPT-2 was cheapo and that was a really bad thing to say about it as well. So yeah, I will draw both those comments. So does uh, just scaling up these models produce results? Is this one better than GPT-3? Yeah, it, it sounds too simple to be true, but yes, it is. Uh, the, the tricky part is that scaling them up isn't all that straightforward. It's basically a really complicated engineering problem. Um, how do you spread this vast calculation across dozens of computers and thousands of graphics cards really efficiently and then ensure that all that data meshes together at the end? And can they keep just scaling up on and on and eventually we get an AI that's, you know, that has human level intelligence? That's a good question. Uh, nobody really knows how long we can keep getting results from scale, but at the moment it is producing results. Uh, there's a bit of an engineering debate about when this will come to an end. And there's there's also a bit of a philosophical debate about whether these vast models are actually learning to reason and solve problems mm. and use language properly, or if they're just remembering vast amounts of examples and spotting which ones to parrot out at the right moment. But then really you can sort of have the same debate about the human brain. <laughs> oh, that's, that's deep. Okay. Well, hopefully you won't be replaced as, a, as our commentator for this subject for another few years though, Matt. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> 
We're in the run-up to Glasgow COP26, the 26th Conference of the Parties, and you've heard of how important it is a lot, I'm sure. It's the most consequential climate meeting in a generation, the meeting on which the future of the planet rests. Yes. It, it really is a massive deal. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, as we said before, it's the biggest party of the year. And we thought, well, you know, it's a party and every party needs a soundtrack. So uh, we put one together. And uh, when I say we, I mean me and uh, sub-editor Beth Ackerley, who joins us in the pod. Hi, Beth. Hey. Hello. I'm freely admitting here that um, you made the selections here much more, let's say, youth-friendly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was drafted in to, to provide some street cred and here yeah. I am. Yes, good. Thank you for making me look good. <laughs> we'll give a link to the Spotify link, uh, playlist in the show notes so you can let us know what you think and make your own suggestion for additions. Yeah, because we, we really want to grow the playlist and, and make it even more diverse and get some unexpected choices in there. And we've already had some really great suggestions on Twitter. So please keep oh, them great. Going. I mean, looking at it right now, it is quite eclectic already. It starts with <laughs> Bessie Smith and then a few songs in, you've got Tupac. <laughs> yeah. So Bessie Smith, um, that's Backwater Blues. That was recorded in 1927. Uh, it's thought to refer to this massive flood in Mississippi in 1927. So we think it counts, therefore, as the first climate change song. Yeah, OK, good argument. But Tupac? Yeah, yeah so, uh, well, you know, I like Tupac and I wanted to include him. So To Live and Die in L.A. is on there because, yeah, OK, look, you know, he wrote that as a gangster story, not as a climate crisis story. But, you know... LA has reached, it's got temperatures of 49 Celsius, 121 Fahrenheit recently. So to live and die in LA suddenly has a really another meaning. So that's why it gets on the list. Okay, great. Beth, what are some of the songs that you've selected? So I selected uh, Venice by Magdalena Bay, which it feels like a sort of hazy escapist kind of synth pop on the surface of things, but there are these visions of heat and apocalypse all the way through it um, <laughs> yeah just in case you get too escapist oh yeah there's some apocalypse to bring you back down <laughs> yeah. um and in a similar vein um the, there's um parade by sylvan esso which again seems very upbeat but it has its picture of dried up oceans and, and the destruction of our natural world and and one of the lyrics in it is um there's nothing left to ruin which you know Hopefully it won't come to. But you know. <laughs> yeah, there's there's still something left to ruin. So yeah, we don't want to give in to doomerism just yet. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm also glad to see Billie Eilish there. Yeah, yeah. Um, with all the good girls go to hell, and Billie Eilish has been very open about the fact that this song was partly inspired by the the very very intense uh, California wildfires in 2018. And she also uh, tied the release of the song very explicitly to the um, 2019 climate strike. I, I'll admit that this was my first ever exposure to Billie Eilish and I, <laughs> I didn't mind it. And I, I read up on her and I, I realised that she's a big sort of vegetarianism advocate. So I think she definitely deserves a place on this climate Absolutely. change spot list. <laughs> and I just want to give a shout to Kate Bush here um, because it suddenly struck me that cloud busting is about geoengineering, I'm, mm. I'm sure. Not really, but um, well, we hope it doesn't come to that. I see Tom York also features twice, once on his own and once with Radiohead. I guess I'm not surprised by that, right? He's been interested and moved by environmental issues for many years now. Yeah. Um, and then I'm just looking down the playlist. Who added Bowie's five years? Is that a nod to our deadline for getting serious about climate change action? Uh, I, yeah, I think I think that was me. Um, <laughs> it gets across the sort of urgency of things. And it, it also 
the song really builds in this way where like Bowie is almost screaming by the end of it, which is, you know, big climate mood <laughs> and all. <laughs> Good climate mood. Um, yeah, please do check out our playlist. We'll post uh, a story about it and uh, the Spotify link in the show notes and on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. And as Beth said, we'd love to hear your suggestions and we'll add to the list. Let's maybe get Greta Thunberg to listen to it and see what she thinks, huh? Well, yeah, well, she's on <laughs> yeah. there. You know, she's uh, she's on the 1975 track. So uh, Greta is already there as a, as a pop star. <laughs> now, we talk a lot about COVID, but frankly, most of it is to do with like vaccines or variants of the virus or the situation in the US or Europe or Australia and not so much about other countries. So today we're going to find out about what's been going on with COVID-19 in Iran. And we've got a piece in the magazine about that this week. So Chelsea, what's the latest? Iran has been particularly hard hit by the coronavirus. It was one of the first countries after China to be hit by the pandemic. And it's being slammed by the Delta variant now. But it's been hard to get a really good picture of the situation because while there's some national level data on you know COVID-19 cases or deaths related to COVID-19, the officials there stopped releasing province level data in March 2020. Yeah, that lack of open communication from Iranian officials and, and their public health response to the pandemic, it's been criticised, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Not only have there been inconsistent policies from the public health officials in the country, the lack of data is really troubling for tracking the flow of the coronavirus. So in order to get a sense of how the pandemics played out in more detail there, researchers at the University of Oxford compared the number of the deaths during the pandemic to the usual numbers from past years, and that helped them calculate excess deaths. And then from that, they extrapolated an estimate of how many people have caught COVID-19 in Iran. Okay. And what did they find? Well, the results are pretty astonishing. If the calculations hold up, it seems nearly every person in Iran may have had COVID during the pandemic, and some have had it two or even three times. Every person. But then, so the population of Iran is what, like 85 million. And they've, what, they so this says they've almost all of them had it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit shocking. Yeah, I think the bit, thing to know, yeah, it's really shocking. You know, I think the thing to note here is that it may not be that all of those excess deaths were from COVID, and that's the basis of this calculation. So if that's not the case, the number certainly could be lower. But either way, the situation there is not not great when it comes to No. COVID. And we did know that reinfection was possible, um, especially as you get these deadlier or certainly more transmissible variants emerging, like the Delta. Yeah, yeah. We also saw a similar situation in Manaus, Brazil last year. There, you know, more than 70% of the population had contracted COVID-19, which put the region over that theoretical threshold for achieving herd immunity. But that didn't happen. What we saw there and what we're seeing again in Iran is more evidence that the immunity a person gets from being infected, it wanes over time. And so vaccines are really key to fighting the pandemic. I mean, that's not a surprise, right? There has never, to our knowledge, been a pathogen for which herd immunity has been reached without a vaccine. Yeah, and we've said time and again, and we've had experts on the podcast saying this, that, you know, to pursue a strategy for herd immunity was something that just didn't have a solid scientific basis. So yeah, vaccines remain the way out of this. But in Iran, the vaccine rollout, that's been delayed, right? So that can't be helping. Yeah, that's right. Estimates range from about 3% of the population being vaccinated to about 23%. 
you know, that's a big range, but again, solid data is kind of hard to come by. But either way, it's a small proportion relative to the population. But as vaccine rollout continues there, we can hope that that current wave of cases will slow down. And we've got a piece on this in this week's mag, and we'll post a link in the show notes if you'd like to read more. Thanks, Chelsea. That's it for this week. And thanks to our guests, Matt Sparks and Beth Ackley and Alice Klein, and to our planetary ecologist, Yadvinda Mali. Thanks for listening. Do follow us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. And remember, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe. And do check out that Spotify collaborative playlist for COP26 and let us know what you think. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.